This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning to all. I stumbled on the most important numbers in our life, Philip. I know. I, and this is the morning run with Philip C. I'm Wong Shaoning. It is 6 a.m. Monday, the 4th of July, and we're wishing all our American friends happy Independence Day. Freedom from the aliens. Oh, sorry, that's a movie, that's not, a not mo- the actual event that took place from the Brits. Uh, yes, from the Brits. Uh, yeah, Philip, <laughs> can you get them all correct, your historical events? Did you have a good weekend? I did. Guess what I did? What uh, did you do? My two normal things, one of course is to bake and the other one is to run. I know, we, we're very happy because we have very nice baked goods to eat later. And also one of our producers came back from Surumban and brought a siupau, which I'm super excited, super <laughs> stoked on. So now you know how the morning run rolls, right? It's always <laughs> surrounded by lots and lots of food. Uh, but I think that's that's the Malaysian way of life. Yes, but I was very disappointed. I tried to audition for the sort of music... Uh, <laughs> A musical end of this month, but apparently I'm not eligible. So I I'm think you're like about 30 years too old, Philip. Or is <laughs> it 35? These, they have these height charts and I ca- hardly made any of the height okay, charts. Okay, I will probably make the height chart <laughs> because I'm barely five feet, oh. but I don't think I can sing to save my life. Yes, yes. I mean, I don't think we qualified to look like any of the Von Trapp children by any stretch of anyone's imagination. Maybe with a wig, but I would probably qualify for the 10-year-old girl. That's I probably see. my criteria. <laughs> but Anyway, uh, we have a packed show for you this morning. At 7.15, we're going to discuss the growing rift between DAP and Warisan, as well as any other political developments, if you can just barely keep up with the news, with analyst Dr. O. Isan. It was a super busy weekend, right? So much happening over on the political front. And across uh, at 7.30, we talk about Hong Kong as they commemorated the 25th anniversary of its handover to Beijing last Friday. And we discuss the city's future with journalist William Pesek. And then at 7.45, we discuss why why Sabah lags behind in economic development with economist Dr. Ferdowsi Sufyan. All this and more on The Morning Run. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. And that was I Wish It Would Rain Down by Phil Collins. And no, I don't wish it would rain. I would rather ra- sunny skies at least for the next few hours. It's 6.07 Monday, the 4th of July. And as usual, uh, we're going to be talking about the things that kind of caught our eye in the World Wide Web or in some newspaper or in some article. And of course, this one is Philip C.'s Choice. It's actually a combination of an article and a podcast series yes. entitled Missing Crypto Queen is Dr. Ruja the Biggest Bitcoin Holder. And I listen, okay? Philip didn't know that I actually listened to all nine episodes of this podcast um, during Christmas season last year when I was on my baking frenzy. And it's an excellent 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 podcast gripping to say the least this has been a saga that's been going on for a very long time referring to dr ruja ignatova she's from bulgaria she basically created this whole bitcoin called one coin and i think what has happened in the past few weeks is that the fbi now has put her on the top 10 most wanted list i think the only female in the top 10 and i think she has hit many records yeah being i think europe's richest one of europe's richest billionaires but very quickly in 2017 she suddenly disappeared from the earth yeah, and they don't know where she is, right? And they don't know where they is. They think she did some plastic surgery, she's hiding. Is she in Dubai? Is she in Russia? Or is she in some yacht? It's a really big question mark. And this is really the case about you melding everything. You have 
issues of royalty with the UAE royalty, United Arab Emirates royalty. You talk about Bitcoin, how she scammed millions, right, to on this one coin uh, cryptocurrency become and being touted as one of the largest Ponzi schemes in the world. And so, and you know, it's so. And her, her larger-than-life exterior, wearing these ball gowns as she enters all these uh, conferences and seminars, makes her very much larger than life. Yeah, and it's like this international woman of mystery, right? Can yeah. I say it? Can I call her that? And it's not to say that she like has no credentials. No, she did go to Oxford and BBC did check on that. She did pass. Um, so it wasn't as if she was like a literally nobody. But you're right, she, she knew how to cultivate a persona that was larger than life that made people believe her. Mm. So at the end of the day, the heart of this story is fraud, right? When you think about it, what kind of people uh, are able to get away with massive fraud? What kind of personalities are they like? And at the end, also, what do we want to believe? Why do we fall for these kind of investment scams? So she launched this one coin at the ripe time when I think crypto was uh, all the rage, all the buzz. I mean, now it's but a very it's, different situation. But also it's rather infancy. At it's infancy. Yes. It wasn't regulated at all. It was relatively new. Yeah. So I think that's so the So she scenario. rode the wave. She rode the wave extremely well. She pushed it. I think she, you know, she got many people converted and promised millions that they would become super rich and wealthy as a result of the process. Of course, now fast forward to today, as we see where Bitcoin stands, perhaps, you know, people will now regret that. But the issue here really isn't the crypto product per se, isn't it? It's no. really about how the whole financial system here you know, mass hides all this hidden wealth. Yeah, I think it's also the, the the concept of that when you want to basically cheat people of their money and you have mm. every intention of creating a fraud, there are certain things that you keep repeating again and again, right? Um, you know, whether it is firstly having this illusion that you're extremely successful, that you're extremely wealthy, they all do that. So they have outward displays of wealth which are beyond people's imagination. So you're living on a big yacht, you're flying a private jet, you're going to exotic cities, you know, you've got pictures of yourself whining and dining at the best places, hanging out with the rich and famous and beautiful. So that that you're like seen as part of them and that if you believe in this person you too can achieve all these mm. you know ima- role modeling role modeling right mm. so i think that's one part of every inv- almost any investment scheme there's almost a formula to it mm. i think that's when the, the real alert uh, you know kind of comes up when you know you kind of pro- propose you pro- promote yourself as a as the a recipe of success that typically is a big challenge isn't it when for all these investment schemes that you yourself are successful and you kind of put yourself out there yeah so that's scams, like one of the biggest issues scams. <laughs> scams that's the right word right but that's where the question here is you know crypto has always been accused of having this whole uh, opportunity to scam people because it's you know blockchain it's encrypted it's very hard to trace but many of the regulators have done a very good job right in tracking and tracing down people. So I wonder if that's going to happen with her as well, eventually, that they will be able to track and trace her through the crypto schemes. But I wonder whether there was actually any crypto transactions made with OneCoin. Apparently, some uh, OneCoin believers, they still believe in this, you know. There's still occasional functions going on, Mm. uh, hoping that one day they'll get the money returned. But in the meantime, right, she managed to get 230,000 bitcoins from this mysterious, well, not so mysterious, this Middle Eastern royalty, and she's still hanging on to it. Mm. So at the peak, right, she was worth uh, 15 billion, but today maybe it's dropped to less. Of course, it's dropped to Six less. 6 billion, than, I think. But yeah. I think the, the, the takeaway is that if something is too good to be true, 
it usually is. Uh, so be warned. Um, but we'll be back uh, in a few moments after these messages. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. 6.18 in the morning, you're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Wong Shaoning together with Philip C. It's Monday, the 4th of July, and that song was pegged by Steely Den. And up next, we've got this thing about... Also chosen by our Atas Philip C. Atas for sure. Very Atas because it comes from the Harvard Business Review. Yes, it an uh, institution that none of us attended, right? Yes, <laughs> you know in Malaysia. So we aspire, but we, we aspire. Tap, we aspire. I actually can put my on my LinkedIn. Okay, I I do watch, I do read Harvard Business Review articles. Perhaps it's my claim to fame, but this article really struck me because the title is "How Unpredictable Schedules Widen the Gender Pay Gap." So just give a bit of context here: women and men pay gap has. It's still very large uh, in 2022, 17%. And this is for the US, right? And for the US. And so the question is, what causes that pay gap uh, issue, right? And I think there are many, many reasons behind it. So they ran an experiment uh, with the Massachusetts Bay Transport Authority, where really it's all union-negotiated contract leaps. Uh, and they've designed it in such a way that there's really no managerial gender bias or employee negotiation that comes into the fall. And even with that, in place, right, where everything is like for like the same, mm. the gap is still wide. It's 11% lower. Okay, so what women. drives this gap then? So they claim that it is the lack of the w- women unable to take unpredictable, fle- flexible schedules. Because what happens is when you are, you know, doing the bus routes, you're called sometimes for these emergency uh, share patterns and such, and women are not likely to take them. They are fifty percent less likely to take all these ad hoc requests mm. because women typically, on their assumption, you know, have a lot of responsibilities outside work. So that's why they're not willing to take on all these additional income, jo- okay. jobs, and sources. So mm. that's why the title is "Unpredictable Schedules Widen the Gender Pay Gap." Because when you're in a situation when you're called to do something urgently, just on a flick of a switch, women are less likely to decline. Are more likely to decline. Okay. Uh, so there's this. Oh, well, I think it, it it goes back to this whole uh, role of women at home, mm. and then also in the in the workplace. Right? Yes. So I think if if we look at the reality of a woman's role, very often they are the ones called to step in when a child is sick. They're called to step in when someone isn't like, you know, parent isn't well. Uh, let's say the babysitter can't come in. School has been closed like during COVID-19. Who's, who normally takes on that role? It is the woman typically. More likely than not, it's mm-hmm. the woman. And that's usually the 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 tip the family dynamics. I think even in Malaysia, probably more in Malaysia than in Western societies, we're still quite Asian and traditional and conservative in some way. So we want to eliminate all of this. You have many levels to look at, right? You've got the level of policy, which is mean the government has to come out and not be biased in terms of its employment opportunities or an employment act. Then companies have to be mindful not to disadvantage women because of this cons- belief that they will not, you know, they will not, um, they will not decline work when they have to. Mm. And then I think the last part, which we don't really discuss so much, is what we can do in households where the work is more equally distributed between the men 
and the woman and we shift away from a patriarchal society. Mm. And Cheryl Sandberg and Lenin also talked a lot. I was thinking exactly that, right? Talked a lot about how the husband has to play their role in the house. In my mind, when I think about this, because this experiment that was conducted in the United States was for blue collar jobs in a very clear setting where you could measure. But that's where the biggest challenge is. You can't measure it when you're in an office environment, especially with work from home. Flexible work arrangements take place, right? What does flexible work arrangement mean? Mm. It means that it also demands flexibility from the employee in the end as well. And if you demand that, is that a liability or asset for women who have to seamlessly meld all these multiple responsibilities at the same time? It's going to be hard, I think, especially for work from home policies. For some, it's an asset because I can juggle everything. But for some, it's going to be super hard when you're called to duty or called to work and asked to do it and you say, look, I can't, I've just got so many things on my plate. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be a delicate balancing act. And as we know, we've changed the Employment Act, right, whereby women can actually write in, anyone can write in to request for uh, more flexible hours. Yeah. Let's see how that evolves. I think it's still very literally work in progress. Uh, but up next, we've got the Fluorescent Adoles- Adolescence by Arctic Monkey, uh, followed by the 630 uh, News Bulletin. So keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, 6.40, Monday, the 4th of July. And of course, you're listening to The Morning Run. In front of me is Philip C and I'm Wong Shaoning. And that song was Everything You Want by Vertical Horizon. Or was it? Uh, but anyway, that's true. I, I do want everything. Uh, but as usual, at this time of the morning, we are going through all the international headlines that have caught our eye. And do you want to start, Philip? Yeah, I think just overnight, what we're hearing over at Copenhagen in Denmark, that several people have been killed in a shooting at a shopping centre in the Danish capital. Apparently, a 22-year-old Danish man has been arrested in connection with the attack. So this has been a pretty uh, fast-developing story that took place overnight. Um, The last time Denmark had a major terror attack was in 2015, so about seven years apart. Wow. I mean, why are they Saniyas? Like, there was some incident not too long ago in Norway as well. That's right. That's uh, right. In a, in a club over the Pride Weekend. I think it actually caused the Pride Weekend celebrations in Norway to be postponed as a result. I, I don't know whether this will just have a... Will, will force a conversation about gun control in the Nordic countries a little bit more. And yeah. I always thought the Nordic countries really had relatively tight gun control legislation. No, I mean, you compare Not, that and contrast that to the United States. Yeah, of course, nobody is, has as lax a control mm. mechanism as the United States, right? Because for many, they see it as enshrined in the federal constitution. I think this, the right to bear arms right. to them is important. Although there's been some progress recently with the bipartisan uh, bill that came through about a week ago. Yeah, uh, but this fact is that it's a scary world out there, right, when people have weapons. Mm. Um, What has caught my eye is actually an article in the Straits Times. And I find it interesting, Singapore Straits Times, by the way, it's actually where the reporter there uh, has taken a look at the different steps taken to fight inflation across Asia. So firstly, in Thailand, their inflation rate is 14-year high. It crossed 7% mark in May. And they too have a National Security Council. Maybe they have one, or maybe I suppose they have one, not like us. We have a few, two. Uh, So they're expected to set up a special team of experts to tackle the country's fuel and food crisis. One of which is that they're going to focus on scarcity to pre- sorry focus on stability to prevent scarcity. They're also look- looking at rising price of fuel because Thailand, of course, is a yeah. net energy importer. The next one is South Korea. 
they have actually lifted the 22.5% tariff on pork because pork prices have actually risen by as much as 15% in the last month alone. Mm, any, I, I think you know this issue about managing cost of living seems to be a very much a global very much issue so because happening everywhere. Inflation for them is expected to surpass 6%. And then in Japan, shock horror for a country that's been suffering deflation for the last 20 years. Consumer prices leapt 2.1% in May. These are the highest spikes in seven years. And they are looking to ease the impact of rising electricity bills by awarding power-saving household points that they can use to lower utility bills. At the same time, we know that Japan is having a humongous heat wave. Yes. Uh, and the electricity usage has increased so much so that the government has to come out and say, can you please, please, please reduce your your power usage? Because the, the aircon, uh, you know, everyone using an aircon has caused actually some issues in terms of the power grid. Well, we were asked also in Malaysia to also reduce our egg consumption, isn't it, as well as a result of the reduction of eggs. And you talk about the special task force that Thailand was announcing. I think Malaysia is also not short of these task force. Over the weekend, uh, we have uh, launched a special task force, a jihad against inflation. Yes, we talked about that. Uh, but don't we already have some uh, task force that's headed by Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin to aid the government in terms of the economic recovery with COVID-19? Oh, the National Recovery Council? Yeah, so how many task force do we need? Or, or are they different task oh, forces? that's very different, Shaolin. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I can't keep up with the task force. But apparently there's talk about that being disbanded because it's not so effective, claimed by some people in Amno and Barisa National. I see. We'll be watching this space. Although if you ask me, shouldn't the task force be comprised of experts who can actually figure out a route out of inflation rather than cabinet ministers who already are in cabinet and shouldn't they be talking about inflation or their weekly cabinet meeting? Are you following this? Film? Well, let's see who's in that jihad. Because, But you know, Xiaoning, it's all about the policy and politics, isn't it? It's about how you do it. And it's very interesting that our communications multimedia minister is in the task force because I wonder... He's heading the task force. He, he's heading the task force. So I wonder if the issue here is actually not the actual price of goods but the communication of the price maybe, of goods. Maybe, maybe. Okay, we need to continue our conversation. We've kind of sidetracked by the local news which is more interesting but let's go back to to global yeah. news and I think I've got the Financial Times in front of me and the headline is ECB to discuss blocking banks from multi-billion euro windfall as rates rise. Now this is one of the repercussions of the COVID-19 crisis right where banks in Europe were given ultra 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 I cannot emphasize anymore ultra low rates uh, in, the, in an attempt so that these banks would then lend on That's to right. consumers at an ultra, ultra, ultra low rate. But guess what? Rates are going up, right? So banks are now making a nice, tidy spread. And ECB says, hey, 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 hey. We don't want you to benefit from this, okay? Please, 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 please. Exactly, because Morgan Stanley estimates that banks could earn between 4 to 24 billion euros of extra profit by putting all these ECB cheap loans on deposit at the central bank from last month. The banks 4 never, to 24 euros, 20 guess, billion euros, man. Guess what? The banks never seem to lose, do they? <laughs> well, 6.46, we're heading into some messages. Uh, keep it here, BFM 89.9. 6.50, Monday, 4th of July, and that was If You Want My Love by Cheap Trick. I'm definitely not cheap if you want my love. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry, I had to. All love in. is expensive. Yeah, all, priceless. All love must be earned. What do you mean? Priceless. No words, okay? No amount of money can pay for it. Uh, but as usual, at this time of the morning, we're looking at all the local headlines. 
Um, who wants to start? Philip? I'll start. I think over the weekend, uh, the Prime Minister made an announcement that all GLCs and GLICs, government-linked investment companies, need to appoint MTUC representatives as board members. Mm. So a rep from the Malaysian Trades Unions Congress is required for all the boards of government-linked companies and government-linked investment companies. Wow, this is quite similar to what is already uh, practiced in Germany. Uh, yes. where they encourage they don't see they see board members as stakeholders or they, they see the company having to reach out to different stakeholders not mm. not necessarily just shareholders and so yeah. they've always had union reps on the board and I, I, I for one don't think it's necess- I think it's quite a good move if you ask me right it's very interesting I think the question here is whether the MTUC is the right representation for employees for that group you're, you're, it's very true also that as you see over the period of time boards are also talking about not only talking about shareholder mm. engagement but stakeholder engagement so how does the decision making encompass that going yes. forward yeah because it's not always about profit right okay I'm looking at uh, Malaysia Kini. They've got an article. Uh, the headline is PM cites freeloading foreigners to justify reduced chicken subsidy. Um, this is Datuk Sri Ismail Sabri saying that the, you know, that explaining that the current chicken price subsidy is not only benefiting Malaysians, but also foreigners. So we, you know, basically he's. That's one thing. And then he basically said that uh, that's the reason why the government continues to give BKM money, which is the cash handouts. I was struck by his comment that he said that, look, uh, also the Rohingyas as well eat chicken. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure what he was referring to there, (laughs) what what his point was with that message. I mean, also freeloading foreigners is another thing, right? He cites that. I think I'm not sure whether he actually said that or that was the Malaysia Kini headline. Mm. but, you know, the foreigners that are here, many of them, the migrant workers, they are doing work for us. They help our economy. We, yeah. You know what I mean? It, do we want to create an environment where there's us and them? That's right. I think this is where the debate is, right? What is foreign here, if an, essentially? And, of course, there's a whole this debate also about providing chickens uh, and lifting that chicken ban to Singapore before we lose out. It's also been a cry from many in the industry going forward, we seem to be getting more insular and inward looking. Yes, and we're not resolving the real root of the problem, right? So you've got inflationary pressures. Consumer price index in Malaysia, yeah, quite low um, by all standards. Food prices, I think, gone up by 5% last month. But we're not resolving this. What we have is a a bit of rhetoric here and there. Mm. Uh, rather than looking at a few issues, which is how to improve our food security, how to raise wages in the longer term, how to remove the comp- the subsidies that uh, basically uh, that the T Twenty enjoy, right? Rather than targeted subsidies and then redirecting that savings towards the most needy. Those are really the structural issues that we need to look at. So you talk about the need for all these resolutions. Perhaps the biggest resolution is the political stalemate in our country. And over the weekend, so much news coming out across uh, the country, especially in Sabah, about the different coalitions that took place. According to Bong Mokta uh, from the BN Youth Chair, youth, pers- youth Lead, I think, Sabah BN Chairman, he says that there's a huge debate about whether or not BN will work with Gabungan Rakyat Sabah and that they have five strategic options to work out if talks with GRS do not turn out well. Well, 
I would just like to remind all Sabah leaders, I'm sure they know that, they don't need me to remind them, by the way. Uh, somebody needs to pay attention to the Sabah economy, right? Still one of the poorest states in Malaysia. Poverty rates are extremely high. So amidst all this politicking that is going on, hopefully somebody's addressing the cost of living issues there. And it's something we'll be discussing later on with Dr. Ferdowsi uh, Sufyan at 7.45. So do tune in. Uh, but... Very quickly, I've got this art, uh, H Weekly. Ensure transparency in RTS link project. This is the frankly speaking column, which I like, my favourite. And I think it's true. Uh, we Who is the white knight? Yeah, basically, we just need to continue with the move towards greater transparency and open, open bidding so that all the projects, are sp- all the money spent on government projects are done so in the most fair and equitable manner, especially considering our fiscal state is not the best and we are already struggling to give out all these subsidies. But up next, we've got the 7am news bulletin uh, followed by, to take us there is this song Are You In by Incubus. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.